shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com. Jeremy's work, of course, is always at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com in San Antonio. The uh, frustrations at the Capitol are many, and they are just getting as intense as I've ever seen them, Jeremy, over so many different issues. And we'll get to a few of them. Some things that we're going to talk about are pretty petty, and other things are about as heavy as they could be. Let's start with heavy. So I have covered immigration in Texas for about two decades, and it's always been a nasty fight. It's always been something that has underlying racism uh, and just some of the nastiest rhetoric that you'll hear and some of the nastiest policies are coming out of that. And it really boiled over in the Texas House this week in a way that I haven't really seen since 2017, and it might be even worse than that. Back in 2017, you might remember the Sanctuary Cities ban passed uh, in Texas. And at that time, it was one of the most emotional, gut-wrenching moments on the Texas House floor that, that I had ever seen. And I'm comparing this, of course, to debates about very divisive things, right? Like abortion, um, LGBTQ issues, guns, you name it. We've seen it all, right? Um, but I've never seen anything that rips up the members like this does. Um, and I want to take people back to Wednesday night and what unfolded. Now, you might have seen, Jeremy, that um, the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus and the Democratic Caucus were going to war on these immigration bills that the governor has demanded on his desk. Um, and the things that are proposed here and we'll see if this stuff makes its way all the way through the legislative process. Some of it already has and, and is awaiting the signature of the governor for at least, uh, I think, at least one of these bills. Um, some of the things are going to be reconciled between the House and Senate. But we're talking about taking the Arizona-style immigration policies at the state level of rounding people up, taking it to the next level, and putting it in Texas law that law enforcement here can deport people. Now, I, that see, would seem to be unconstitutional on its face, but you remember that we used to think that about a ban on abortion, didn't we? And then the, cha the, you know, the changes came to the federal bench and to the Supreme Court specifically. And so there is a school of thought now that Texas is going to try to overturn what the Supreme Court found about Arizona's law years ago. Now, it, things boiled over in the House, uh, and I expected it to be heated, but not as not as uh, not as hot as it got. I, this is not what I thought was going to happen. Republicans sought to limit debate on these immigration proposals, and it was the way that they did it that I think was so disrespectful to the Latino members. And I hate this. I hate talking about this, but you got to do it um, because when I see these debates, Jeremy. I see people who otherwise like each other ripping each other up. And let me give you the example of what happened. So Representative Cody Harris is a Republican from East Texas, and he was the one to try to cut short the debate. Now, when I say cut short, I mean that they might have been there until midnight instead of four in the morning. It was going to be a long, nasty debate anyway. Uh, but Harris went to the front mic of the House, and he what he did was he said, hey, for all of this debate, we should only uh, talk about amendments that have already been offered on a certain bill, uh, talk about those amendments that have already been written, rather than what they usually do, which is let amendments you know, continue to flow as long as they continue to come. And now there is, an, there is another way to do it, which is to have what they call a calendar rule, 
which is what they do for the budget and for some other big pieces of legislation like redistricting bills, for example, where they basically say that there's a due, you know, there's a there's a time certain at which you need to have your amendments uh, uh, submitted, whether you're Republican or Democrat. So if they're going to debate a bill on Tuesday, they might say, "Hey, everybody needs to have their amendments, uh, you know, submitted to, uh, you know, submitted to the House um, by you know 5 p.m. on on Monday, something like that." Harris was trying to do that in real time. And they had about 50 amendments to debate. That would have taken them hours. And when Harris made this motion to limit the debate, that led to some questions from Democrats like Trey Martinez-Fisher from San Antonio. Representative Harris, there are members who have amendments that are in certain phases of being drafted right now, and I hate to cut them off. I know I have one that I'm working on, and we've submitted it 30, 45 minutes ago. We're just waiting. And so under your motion, would you give allowance for people who have amendments already at Ledge Council's desk, just waiting for drafts to get back and get them filed? The, the, the motion as it's made, I don't, I don't think that's an amendable motion. Uh, so we're, we're, what we're talking about is the, the amendments that are currently on the speaker's desk. Um, yeah, there's, I think, 46 amendments that have already been filed. And so I would imagine that there's plenty of opportunity to have the full debate on this bill with that many amendments. Representative Armando Wally, who's a Democrat from Houston, he's been in the Texas House for, I think, 15, 16 years. Uh, he was very frustrated with this. He said um, that the way they were trying to cut off the debate, Jeremy, he said it was unconventional. That, that's one way to paraphrase what he said. His frustration was caught in what we call a hot mic moment where he was saying something else. He was thanking the speaker for allowing him to you know, ask some questions. And then we heard him say this. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This is fucking bullshit. Okay, so that's, that's the first F-bomb of the show. I'm going to warn folks going forward that the language gets a lot stronger than that. Representative Wally went to go talk to some Republicans uh, on the floor. This was not on the front or back mic of the House, Jeremy. This was just on the floor. And another one of the members took some video of the comments that uh, Wally made to Representative Harris. Uh, he's confronting Harris and saying, look, this is not right. That we should be able to make any proposals we want on this, even if they're going to get voted down anyway. He basically says, that he knows that that Democrats don't have the votes to stop the bill or or to change it in any real significant way, uh, but this is a deliberative body and they're supposed to be able to have you know full and open debates. And I would remind people that in 2017, when uh, the sanctuary cities ban was debated, that debate went until about three in the morning, and at that point, at 3 a.m. or so, there was a motion to stop the debate, but to at least let all of the members have their say as far as voting on the amendments, and it was done through sort of a creative process, and I won't get into all that, but but it was, I would say this, the way that debate was cut off in 2017, when it was also very emotional, um, that was still done in a more respectful way than what happened this week. And I, I know I'm going to get some notes about that, and, and you might remember that, but it was when Dennis Bonin, he was not the speaker yet, Dennis Bonin made a motion to cut off debate, and members at the time were sort of... Um, they were frustrated by it, but at least they had had their say until 3 a.m. When this happened this week, it was basically at around 6 o'clock when Republicans said, we don't want to be here all night, and we're also not going to offer Democrats anything you know, in, in the way of making the bill any better or taking anything you know, you know, that might be a, a bad amendment off the table or anything like that. Instead, Jeremy, this was Republicans just steamrolling Democrats. 
Yeah, and, and look at the commonality here. It's like people from 2017 to, to now, and both these you know situations, we have these border security debates that turn into, in 2017, the show me your papers discussion, where like any person who's Hispanic anywhere in the state, no matter if you were like in Amarillo, Texas, could just be questioned on your immigration status just because. Uh, same here. In a degree, you know, it's like in, in, in a different way, but uh, this would allow law enforcement to, you know, arrest people who they deem or believe might be illegal immigrants in their mindset. Mm-hmm. And so that's, again, look at what both those things do. It's like, this isn't just about, you know, people on the border. This is people anywhere in the state of Texas just living their lives. If they had to report a crime to a, you know, somebody in law enforcement, that law enforcement officer, depending on how much of a jerk they want to be, could say, well, are you even here legally? And then start proceedings to try to get them out of it. Like, so you can yeah. see how like, if you live in any one of these Hispanic communities you know, in Houston or San Antonio or Dallas, this is about you. This is like, that's why this becomes so much more personal for a lot of people. It's like regular yeah. human beings now like, that have nothing to do with the border are now impacted just because of your skin color because of where you're standing. It's like, and that's unbelievable. I can't imagine the frustration that would be if you're sitting here as a seven generation, you know, um, American and you're being pulled aside and Mm -hmm. asked these questions that are like, are you kidding me? It's like, what, who has the right to do that? And you can see in both 2017 and in what everybody's going to hear here, it's like, you Mm -hmm. feel that same kind of passion of like, this isn't. This is about us. This isn't just about some border security package anymore. Mm-hmm. Now you've turned the target onto people who look like me and my friends. Yeah, and that's very important context for what you're about to hear. So Representative Wally is confronting um, Cody Harris, and he says, "Look, we know that we're going to lose these votes. We know that our amendments are probably not going to be accepted by the Republican majority. But at least let us say what we came here to say and represent the people that we were, you know, sent here by the the, the voters who put us in office. Um, if you've ever been to Representative Wally's district, it's exactly what you said. It's a lot of, you know, just honest, hardworking Hispanic folks. A lot of people who work either in uh, the oil field or in oil field services this is up around Greens Point uh, in Houston uh, and, and that area uh, surrounding that. Um, and he's basically saying to Harris, Look, this is this is um, this is our communities on the line. And this is um, this is our lives. He says a version of this. He says, you don't live in our skin. You don't know what it's like to be Latino in this state. And then you're going to add to that um, this threat that anyone could be arrested, including a U.S. citizen, just because the cop thinks that they might be illegally in the country. Y'all don't understand the shit that y'all do hurts our community. It hurts us personally, bro. Could you just let us it hurts it? us. Just, just let us debate it. It hurts us to our fucking core. And y'all don't understand that. Y'all don't live in our fucking skin. Y'all don't, man. And that's what pisses me off. I sit there. I've been a good fucking soldier to him. That's right. To my own fucking detriment. That's right. To my own detriment. And to cut off debate when all of our members are trying to have a debate, a a civil debate. Nobody's gotten, nobody's gotten crazy. We're just trying to have a debate. Let the chips fall where they may. We know where the, we know where the bill's going. Yeah, we know. Let us debate what we need to debate. Get it, let us blow some steam. 
But that's fucking bullshit. I've never, I've been here 16 years. I've never seen it. Now, what kind of things do Democrats want to debate? Were they crazy liberal ideas? Well, let me give you an example. One, and you can judge for yourself on this. Here was Representative Wally uh, with an idea, with an amendment, to shield children from prosecution. My amendment would ensure that the state of Texas isn't in the business of putting children under the age of 11 in jail. If you recall from the previous regular session, I offered a very similar amendment to House Bill 7, authored by Chairman Guillen. And Chairman Guillen graciously accepted that amendment because I don't think the body wanted to be in the business of putting babies in jail. That's the amendment. I move adoption. Okay, well, no, that doesn't sound crazy that you would want to keep, uh, you know, little kids from being arrested and put in the county lockup. What other kind of crazy things were Democrats trying to do? One proposal had to do with making sure that rape victims can go to the cops if the rape victim happens to be undocumented and they don't have to fear the kind of thing you were talking about, uh, Jeremy. Here is Representative Ann Johnson, also from Houston, a former prosecutor. She said that, and listen to her, she is... She is really fired up here. She says, look, they just want to make sure that if someone doesn't have papers, that they don't have to be afraid of the police, that they can go report that. Um, and they're not going to have to worry about getting caught up in an immigration situation. And listen to the exchange here as she's talking. One of the Republicans on the floor, it's not the guy she's talking to, David Spiller, who was the, the representative who carried this bill. But one of the other Republicans says, why don't you just move on from this? And she just explodes at them. This is the first law I can think of that we're going to pass that targets the victim of rape from disclosing to law enforcement the information that the rest of us in this room need to protect us from the actual rapist. All right. And again, the purpose of House Bill 4 Move on. Is, is no, not we can't move on. We can't move on. This no, is I'm, what I'm, you got earlier. I'm not asking when you to move say, on. I know you're not, Mr. Spiller, but whoever mouthed off, move on. This is the point. This is the point of the policy that we know is coming that we can't even have a rational conversation about the fact you are, not you, not you, not you. But this is a simple amendment that just says, look, whatever you're saying you're intended, if you happen to be a rape victim that shows up to undergo a rape exam, <laughs> that you're not going to fall under this provision, which will chill an already unbelievably chilled population from coming forward to law enforcement. Right. So that's why I'm asking, please consider the amendment and accept it. And if not, men, vote for it. You really want to create a safe haven for rapists? That if they pick a non-citizen, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card because we got to get this bill passed because we got to move on? Now, this is not a new argument that she's making, Jeremy. You know, it was a standing order at the Houston Police Department uh, and had been for many, many years that police, when they encounter somebody on the street in town, they do not inquire about immigration status. And the reason for that, uh, there's a few reasons. One, we had never previously thought that local cops should be enforcing immigration law. That's always been the feds deal. And number two, and, and I, it probably should be number one because it's, it's what it's really about is public safety, is you want people to feel comfortable going to a police officer and telling them that something has occurred that is illegal. Uh, and I'm not talking about the misdemeanor 
of entering the country without inspection, I'm talking about things like rape. I'm talking about things like murder. I'm talking about things like attempted murder. I'm talking about uh, armed robbery and the kinds of things uh, that happen to young children like kidnapping. Real public safety issues uh, for all of our communities across Texas, especially the places that are represented by people like Armando Wally, who you heard earlier, just exploded these guys. And, and look, one of the things he said, Jeremy, when he was so angry, was, hey, look, we're not getting crazy in this debate. Then you heard him on the front mic in a very reason, you know, just reasoned and measured tone. He was saying, let's do things like not put kids in prison. And then there's Ann Johnson saying, can we at least create a safe harbor for a woman who was raped to be able to go to the cops and not have to worry about an immigration issue? Yeah, and in that same vein, it's like imagine you remember, you know, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Colony Ridge and people assuming that there's some scary people living in there. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? Guess who we need cooperation with in order to kind of go after cartels? It would be other Hispanic community members who feel like they can report something to the police and not become hassled by those same police. I think this is a case where it's like if you really want to like get buy-in from you know, people in the Hispanic community who might be reluctant to report stuff, like you, you can't keep making it harder on them to be able to just report the same crimes the rest of us can. Uh, it's like, so like if you, if there were like, you know, a gang activity happening in a, a part of San Antonio or Houston, you want other good law abiding citizens, no matter their skin color, to be able to say something. And it's like, and, and, Loss like this, like you just have that potential of just making it harder. There's, you know, nice. if you spend time in the East End or in the South Side in San Antonio, you will hear people who just like they don't want to call the police because right. they know it's going to be a hassle. It's like right. they, they're going to be hassled. You know, it's like even if they're legal citizens, if, if you can imagine a case where, uh, you know, those DACA kids, it's like, you know, you talk to them for a little bit. It's like you were like they live in a different kind of fear. Like any time they get pulled over, they're concerned. Even if they have those papers, you know, from the Obama era, like right. there's a nervousness there. It's like now imagine if you've had like the worst thing happen to you in terms of some sort of crime. You know, it's just like that is like again, it, it goes to uh, Acevedo, the former police chief in Houston, really kind of you know really stressed it a lot when he was you know police chief talking about trying to rebuild trust with those Hispanic communities so they will report when they are being harmed so they can do something about it. Well, it's, um, it, it's, it's maybe putting too fine a point on it, but I don't think anyone who's undocumented from Canada is going to be asked about it by an officer <laughs> in Dallas or Houston <laughs> or anybody who's uh, but somebody from Mexico would be or someone of Mexican lineage would be. So, uh, an undocumented person from Switzerland or um, or Germany is yeah. probably not going to have this problem, right? Yeah. Um, this is this is about brown people, and like you said, a lot of people who, as far as paperwork is concerned, don't even have a legal issue. They're either permanent residents or they're citizens, and they're afraid to pick the phone up and call the cops if their house got broken into. And we have enough issues with public. I mean, it's Republicans all the time talking about how we have enough problems with the cops and the quote unquote defunding of the police and all of that. Why would you want to make the cops job even harder? Here's another example from this debate. 
another one of the bills that they're talking about would put a uh, uh, what they call a mandatory minimum sentence in place if you are pulled over and you have somebody who's undocumented in your car with you you would potentially go to to jail to prison for a decade and a judge would not even be able to say that uh, you know in this situation that was the person's cousin and they're not smuggling anybody this 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 proposal has to do with it's it's supposed to be about human trafficking smuggling people um but guess what happens every day in texas people have folks with them that are not documented it could be that they're taking them to church it could be that they're taking them to a job dropping kids off at school whatever it could be a relative coworker, or a neighbor um, and here you have uh, the chair of the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus, Victoria Niave-Criado, asking Ryan Guillen, who's a Republican from South Texas, she says, why are we doing um, a 10-year minimum sentence for this? Where did that number come from? Was that just pulled out of thin air or out of somebody's you-know-where, as Trump would say? They're, what, they're wherever, they're whatever. Where did that number of 10 years come from? Federal government doesn't even provide as nearly a harsh penalty. In fact, the U.S. Sentencing Commission says the federal government issues on average around a 15-month sentences for smuggling. So how the 10-year sentence seems really arbitrary. Can you tell us how you decided that it would be 10 years and not seven years or five years or three years? Uh, it, it was, uh, first of all, it started with the governor's um, emergency item uh, at the beginning of the regular session. And so that was the inspiration of it. And and we drafted the bill from there. So the governor said 10 years? He, he was proposing a 10-year minimum, yes. And so we, we started with that idea. And we've been working uh, with stakeholders and members of, of both chambers since. So the answer is, it's what the governor asked for. It's what the governor's ordering up, like he's ordering uh, lunch on the menu at a restaurant. I have never seen, Jeremy, To the, I mean, I've been doing this for quite some time. I have never seen the legislature be just so compliant with whatever the governor wants. Um, and, and that's not to say that they shouldn't listen to him, that he can't make policy proposals, but they're just giving him exactly what he wants. That's what's happening on that Spiller bill. That's what happens with this Guillen bill. Um, this has become the safe space for Republicans to always try to seem as tough as possible on immigration when some other things might be falling apart on them, like the school choice issue, which we'll talk about more on a future show. If that's not happening, guess what? We can still rack up a win on immigration. Now, in 2017, which I mentioned previously, when there was just as nasty a debate about immigration and border security when the sanctuary cities ban was passed in the House, it was emotionally exhaustive. The members ripped each other up, as I mentioned. Um, and the governor, the same governor, Governor Abbott, you remember after that bill passed, he, you know, shared all praise with the other, you know, with the other Republicans who worked on this. Uh, he invited Republicans to the governor's mansion for a big signing ceremony so that they could all take credit for the work they had done to crack down on illegal immigration. Do you remember that? Actually, yep. no, you don't. And you don't remember that because remember what happened. They passed the bill and then he just signed it in a Facebook live video on a Sunday night by himself. He didn't even tell the author of the bill at the time, the guy who sponsored it in the House, was Charlie Guerin, who had re basically rewritten the bill and then it went through the amendment process and 
all of that. I, as I remember it, Garen didn't even know the governor was going to sign it on Facebook Live that night on a Sunday. I, at the time, I called it the drive-by signing because he just, you know, did this, went on down the road, and didn't didn't share any of the credit with anybody. It's it's as if these these people don't remember that Jeremy. They're just going to do whatever he says. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's amazing. Again, not to be too repetitive about it, but like it's it's interesting. Like there's a lot of. You can see there's a lot of territory to talk about border security for Republicans, and they win in the public debate on this issue a lot. But it's just like when you take it too far, it's like you just like you kind of know where that line should be. And it's like in this case, like you could rack up some border security wins and say you were tough on the border and appease your base without like some of what we're seeing happen. You know, it's like it, it, it's you know they should kind of be able to recognize the signs of when. When garden variety border security, I know that sounds mm. kind of weird, but when yeah. that turns into, oh my gosh, you're like, you're offending members so deep to their core, you heard it in all of those clips. It's like, yeah. this isn't just like normal routine public policy discussion. This is like, wait a minute, why are you making an enemy uh, in the, uh, you know, in this state of the population that we have, you, you look at what Texas looks like. You know, we've talked about this before. It's like this is the wrong state to be trying to send anti-Hispanic messages. It's like we are a mulatto culture of Hispanics and you know, you know, everybody together. It's, it just makes no sense to me. Well, it's really well said, and we'll continue to you know figure out what's happening with these immigration bills as they make their way through the process, Jeremy. We'll keep an eye on it very closely. Um, something that's making me laugh in the meantime, something that's pretty ridiculous. Did you see that the Attorney General, uh, Ken Paxton, this week uh, was, the, the report was, that you know, some on the right tried to make it sound like uh, he was sort of kicked out of the Texas House in a petty move by the Speaker. It doesn't seem that's really what happened at all. Um, it's my understanding that the Attorney General blew right past the security uh, to go into the Texas House and, and stand in a spot where you're just not allowed to stand unless you have specific authorization. The rules about this are pretty clear. There are folks who are allowed uh, on the Texas House floor and in some areas that are adjacent to the Texas House floor, but it's just a security thing. I mean, you have, um, in theory, you have 150 uh, duly elected representatives who are all in one place at the same time, and so you do have to have legitimate security, right? And you can't just have people coming in and out. Obviously, there are certain dignitaries who will visit them. You'll see sometimes there'll be, you know, sports figures uh, who will be out there. You know, at some point you'd have the Houston Astros out there. The next session, they'll have the Rangers out there if they, you know, if they win the World Series. I'm, <laughs> I'm not exactly rooting for them, but if they win, you know they'll be in the House and the Senate in the next session, right? They'll be celebrating that. Uh, but they have to be given specific authorization to be there. They can't just walk out there. So you had the Attorney General go into the back hallway of the Texas House, and he was kicked out by the Sergeant at Arms, the security. Um, and Paxton and his supporters are saying this was some, you know, as I said, some petty move by the Speaker because this is the legislative body that impeached Ken Paxton. The Speaker and Paxton obviously don't like each other. And it is about as petty as it could be. But of course, this is going to come up a lot, right? These petty little spats between Texas House Republicans and the Republican Attorney General, who has said, as we've reported here, that he's going to target a lot of Republicans in their primaries. Um, one of those Republicans is Jeff Leach, who I was told was almost berated 
by Paxton on the same day that he was in the Texas House, uh, air, you know, the area near the floor when he wasn't supposed to be. The basically Paxton shouted out at Jeff Leach and said, "Hey Leach, you know, I want to talk to you." And Leach just kept on walking. He didn't even he didn't even acknowledge that he was there. Uh, Leach was also on WFAA television in Dallas uh, last Sunday. And he was asked by Jason Whiteley, who hosts their uh, political show on Sundays. Uh, Whiteley asked him about the AG going after these Republicans, hammer and tong, in what's been called a retribution tour. Attorney General Ken Paxton says he wants to clean house after the Senate acquitted him. Uh, he wants to clean house specifically on the Republicans who impeached him on corruption charges. You were kind of leading that effort as well. Paxton endorsed a person running against you. Are, how concerned or confident are you going into next March's primary? Well, look, I, if, if my uh, primary opponent and other primary opponents across the state want to want to uh, shroud themselves and cloak themselves in, uh, in the support of someone who I believe in is not only corrupt, uh, but is a sophisticated criminal, um, then, then by all means they can have that. A sophisticated criminal is what he's calling Paxton. This guy is going to be campaigning against guys like Leach and the Speaker and uh, Andrew Murr from the Hill Country and other folks in the House who are Republicans and went after Ken Paxton. Um, I'm not sure how this is going to play. I was reminded uh, by a friend this week that, you know, what really sits on to, because here, here we are in Texas and we get hyper-focused on the AG versus some of these uh, House members. Uh, and of course, this is internal fighting in the Republican Party that's gotten some national attention. I saw that. I think there was an NBC News headline this week about how, oh, that what, what's happening in Texas with the turmoil in the Texas GOP, it may signal the, you know, the party's future nationally. Well, what sits on top of all of this, as a friend of mine was saying, is that President Trump, the former president, is going to be running for president as Paxton's doing this, right? You know, you have Trump who is, you know, sort of on his retribution tour um, while he's also, you know, facing multiple prosecutions and, you know, he was already impeached twice. You had Paxton who was impeached, at least for Paxton, he was only impeached once. As, as a former speaker said, um, when you're impeached, you're impeached forever. Uh, but all this infighting, Jeremy, it's not just the petty things like Leach versus Paxton right now where they're kind of sniping at each other. But it's also some of the big legacy things, right? Like, um, remember President George W. Bush's big initiatives in Africa? You, you were talking about this on social media and elsewhere. Um, talk about this program and a little bit what's going on with it. We're going to hear from Senator Cornyn and some others. But but remind everybody what this is and, and the fact that you have Republican infighting that imperils something that George Bush worked so hard on that again one of his legacy things yeah this this is just kind of an exclamation point on how the republican on republican uh battles are now just taking all kinds of uh additional hostages you know maybe not necessarily intended but anyhow so so you know it, you'll remember you know we're, we're 20 years ago uh uh, George W. Bush like be, really began this initiative to get more funding and more aid programs uh, directed towards Africa to help fight AIDS. You know, this was a major undertaking at the time. Uh, you know, you know, AIDS were going and HIV were just rampant on the continent there. And you know, as Bush had seen it. This was kind of a great example of American soft power to do this humanitarian mission that would, well, one, help eradicate this epidemic, you know, which really has a lot of like hints at the pandemic that we ended up facing later. 
Uh, it helped kind of build some of the infrastructure and the training on the ground in Africa to help them when uh, the coronavirus hit. So you can see there's like a lot that kind of went into this. And what it's done is like, you know, it's like it's, you know, there's a lot of numbers get, get floated out uh, on what the progress has been on this thing. But it ended up spending, you know, we're over $100 billion that now have been spent. And what have we gotten for it? It's saved 25 million lives. And it's a program that I've, you know, seen like, you know, it, you almost measure it in, you know, this is kind of dark to say, but it, you almost measure it in orphans. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, the amount of care that, you know, America has helped uh, deliver uh, it, about 7 million orphans from mm-hmm. HIV and AIDS have been directly helped by the U.S. government. Yeah, remember that uh, Bush and uh, U2 frontman Bono teamed up on this stuff. Um, and uh, five years ago at the Bush Center uh, up in Dallas, uh, they got together to talk about it. Uh, the President Bush was honoring Bono and he was honoring him right back. I'm here to honor your leadership and on the greatest health intervention in the history of medicine, no less. And that's what people I, I'm not sure understand that there's, you know, 13 million lives from PEPFAR. And if you add the Global Fund, there's probably about 21 million lives have been saved by this work that you began and then and, and led on, and, and I'm here to honor that. Ashley Bono, uh, it's the work we began. And the truth of the matter is, uh, it never would have made it out of Congress had you not been engaged. So the first time I met you, you knew more statistics. I mean, like you're coming right out of the CIA. One of these analysts. It's the first time anyone has ever said that. But thank you. Well, you probably couldn't get a clearance. <clears throat> a clearance I understand. <laughs> so, so what's happening with this now in Washington? And then we'll, we'll hear from uh, Senator Cornyn in just a second. Yeah. So, so what, what, what's happened? Like, so the Heritage Foundation, particularly, kind of led this effort, saying that they think that the Biden administration is using terminology uh, about transgender and you know. LGBTQ communities uh, in a way that, you know, is showing some, you know, liberal leanings and that they need to kind of stop this. They're particularly concerned that abortion somehow is being addressed in this program. Uh, Mind you, federal funding cannot be used for any abortion anywhere. You know, it's like so U.S. federal funding can't go towards abortion, you know, planning at all. Still, Heritage Foundation kind of rang this alarm back in May and Republicans in, you know, some Republicans in Congress kind of jumped on that. And then now, so they started slowing down the, the, what was the reauthorization of the program, which gets reauthorized every five years. And every five years has been like a slam dunk. Everybody's been fine with it. This year, nope. You know, they decided, no, we want some provisions in there uh, that will address abortion, which of course is a dead you know, issue immediately if it goes over to the Senate, so you know, which is controlled by Democrats. So that solved it there. So it got caught up in all the budget negotiations. But then on top of it, it gets caught up in the budget negotiations and now it goes to, you know, it needs to be kind of worked out. But guess what? The House doesn't have a speaker, you know, for three weeks. And so right. no discussions have been going on to kind of help this program get going. And so that is that brings us to this week where, you know, George W. Bush, who has been basically secluded in his retirement, like you don't see him talk about politics hardly at all. But like right. he came out of the ranch, essentially, you know, writing op-ed pieces at the Washington Post, 
you know, he has his, you know, Bush Institute up in Dallas, you know, getting involved, trying to kind of start lobbying people that we really do need this to come through. And, and one of the lines he kind of said in addressing all of this, you know, uh, to the people who have been kind of questioning whether there's some like abortion concern, he said, yeah. you can't get more pro-life than a program that saves 25 million lives. Right. As I can, so the, the fact that he's kind of involved in this and the Institute's back involved in it shows you that this, there's a lot of concern about how do we get this program going with this internal Republican opposition that is slowing down maybe the greatest achievement of this particular Republican president. And as far as um, elected Republicans, the elder statesman for Texas would be John Cornyn. Here's what he had to say about it. You know, this is one of the great legacies of uh, President Bush's administration. I remember uh, when the Bush Center was being dedicated at SMU, President Carter mentioned the uh, President Bush's initiative that saved millions of lives in, of lives in Africa. And uh, what a great humanitarian achievement that that was. So I, I don't, it makes no sense to me to turn our back on something that's been so successful and it's, it's still uh, so needed. The United States needs to be involved in Africa because China uh, is increasingly involved and filling the vacuum when we are not engaged. And Jeremy, uh, you talked to uh, a policy expert on this. I think her name is uh, Catherine uh, Bliss. What was that conversation? Yeah, uh, she's with the, uh, I can't remember the, the acronym, CCSIS or mm -hmm. something like that. But anyhow, they, they, uh, they really kind of look at immigration and international policies and things like that. Uh, and one of the things that they were talking about was just like, you know, you know how this has brought together so many sources and resources that really kind of, like we talked about earlier, laid the groundwork for not just fighting AIDS, but for helping the overall delivery of services and aid during all pandemics and just has really kind of made the continent so much better able to kind of deal with pandemics that would have been much more worse, you know, much worse yeah. if like, if this program hadn't already trained, you know, over 200, you know, million nurses, you know, on that continent to kind of really help deal with these issues. Yeah, here's her take. The success of PEPFAR over 20 years has helped kind of make the HIV pandemic seem like less of an emergency than it was in the early 2000s. But the fact is that if PEPFAR is not reauthorized or if the United States cuts funding along with other flows of funding for HIV, this can create a gap in service provision for people living with or at risk of HIV. And then there's a good chance that we could see a resurgence of the virus at a time when there are really so many tools available to address it. You know, what I'm reminded of is years ago, this is probably almost 20 years ago, when Senator uh, Kay Bailey Hutchison was in office, and she was leading the charge on reauthorization of the Children's Health Insurance Program. And at that time, there were some people in the Republican, just like Heritage Foundation now, is you know talking about transgender uh, issues and whatever else to try to scuttle this program that you know was pioneered by uh, the Bush administration you know in concert with a whole lot of people at that time on the children's health insurance program some in the Republican Party including some of our congressmen from Texas and I'm thinking of some in particular from Houston who had said that if we reauthorize this pro program which was very popular as this deal is with the uh, initiative in Africa, um, the uh, Children's Health Insurance Program, that CHIP, as they call it, one of the most popular programs that the government has ever 
put together. Republicans and Democrats are both for this. You know, there are a lot of kids who aren't covered by, you know, certain uh, certain coverage and, and they can't get Medicaid for certain reasons. Um, and they you know, tried to make sure that kids had, you know, the health care that they needed. There were some congressmen from Houston who were saying that if you if you authorize this program, undocumented kids are going to get it. And so we shouldn't do it. And I remember at that time, Senator Hutchison, and she was frustrated with me for even asking her about that criticism from fellow Republicans. She acted as if she didn't even want to hear that and just went on and did it anyway. And and at that time, they just, they did. They just went on and did, and did it anyway. At that time, those sorts of arguments were seen as extreme and on the periphery of real policy debates. And now it sounds like what you're telling me, Jeremy, is that stuff, the, you know, the stuff that the Heritage Foundation is saying about transgender people and about uh, abortion somehow being tied up in this, um, that those th- those are kind of moving to the mainstream and the center of the party, and it's making it impossible to keep something that President George W. Bush put in place, uh, you know, who, of course, again, is an, an, you know, an elder statesman of the Texas Republican Party, not in office anymore, but when he gets you know, activated in politics, it tells you a lot about the, the stroke that these, gro- the, these groups now have. The people who are making those arguments are having some success with them, obviously, because, as you said, this is potentially in danger. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, that you bring up Kay Bailey Hutchinson. You know, I actually saw her last night. I was at this uh, Rice University uh, gala on yeah. the Baker Institute, uh, their anniversary. It's their 30th year. Uh, they do oh, yeah. a lot of public policy research stuff. But, you know, Kay Bailey Hutchinson was there, but, you know, so was, uh, they had Hillary Clinton and uh, James A. Baker, of course, you know, two former secretaries of state. Uh, Henry Kissinger was supposed to be there, but he wasn't able to make it because of some injury he had. But, you know, ultimately, but like they were talking about this kind of thing, right? Like this part where like Americans, you know, you know, military might is one thing, but America also has this other you know, piece to really kind of, you know, do good around the globe that helps us then from our national security standpoint. You know, if you're creating allies from your goodwill in places like Africa and Asia, you're building allies who then have a commitment to you. And this was kind of a big piece of the conversation, you know, last night that we were listening to and, and particularly, you know, started talking about this, this idea that Republicans now are against funding Ukraine, uh, where it's like, and again, in this room with a lot of diplomats in it, it was like, my gosh, if there's one thing that's consistently good for America is if you're giving aid to Ukraine to help them fight for their freedom, mm-hmm. it's, it's, they're putting their necks on the line. Their you know, soldiers are on the line you know, defending something that we would normally have to do, right? And right. so like, it's Americans who aren't giving their blood to protect a part of the world, to show power against Russia, to show power against China, and, and show the world that you know, we are kind of you know, still what we can be in terms of you know, providing aid around the globe. And I, I think this, you know, what's happening with Bush is kind of what we're hearing with Ukraine and even what we're hearing with American involvement really anywhere in the world. You're even seeing it with you know, discussions about Israel and Gaza. It's like, where does America, do we go back to some isolationist policies that some in the Republican Party now have kind of gravitated towards, you know, or do we still kind of have that, you know, role uh, of being, you know, I don't want to say policemen of the world, but we clearly mm-hmm. are a, the leader of the world. And when we recede on that line, 
it creates all kinds of pockets of problems, right? You know, it's like, and so if we start receding in Africa on things like this, uh, do they start building relationships with China and Russia that mm -hmm. ultimately become a problem for us later on? Think about where somebody puts a base, you know, it's like, you know, think about uh, in Syria, you know, like where Russia, you know, you know, took advantage of that situation uh, when we were fighting ISIS and started blowing up the allies we were trying to help. You know, it's like you just see where it creates these vacuums. But that part of that, the national or international global politics has kind of been lost on a generation of Republicans that kind of have mm -hmm. risen up through the Tea Party. You know, you can kind of feel that none of that make, matters to them. They just keep hearing this message of they're not Americans. They can do it right. on their own. You know, why we have enough problems at home. Why should we have to deal with that? It's like, well, you have to deal with that when you, you know, when, if you think that mindset, that is when, you know, you know, tragically, when you start seeing when the, the crisis in the Middle East becomes our 9-11, you know, that mm -hmm. is why, you know, it's like these discussions have to happen. If it's not happening somewhere else, if we're not fighting somewhere else. And boy, I sound like a lot of the some of the more neocon people. I don't mean to sound like <laughs> Ambassador John Bolton, but but it's like if you're not fighting them over there, eventually it's going to come to your doorstep. And I think all of mm -hmm. this kind of fits in that ball. And I think that's why you see Bush, you know, kind of having like you know, I, I you know, I don't know George W. Bush personally, but I imagine he's in the situation where I don't really want to be out there publicly right now, like fighting some fight from 20 years ago, but I have to be because this is insane. It's like this is actually something that costs us very little money and yet provides so much international goodwill that it helps maybe, you know, counter some of the stuff of our military intervention yeah. in places that haven't gone well. You know, these discussions about foreign policy often sound so complicated, but the truth is that you can boil it down in a way that they're not. So let me just explain it like this. If something bad happens to you, it's always better to have more friends than less friends. Right. I mean, that, right. I mean, that, you know, if you need money, if you need uh, support for something uh, like uh, like a surgery that happens, you have somebody in your family who was injured, you have um, any kind of a tragedy happen in your household. The more friends you have, the better. Right. I mean, you have some kind of a crisis breakout in, in your personal life. The more friends you have, the better, the better your support system is, the better it is. And the, the whole idea behind uh, diplomacy and having more friends around the world is that when there are bad things happening, that you kind of team up against the bad guys and and take them on. Um, and look at what's happening in Africa. You mentioned China uh, and and you know um, China being uh, you know sort of trying to move you know make these moves along with Russia and Iran and those forces trying to dominate you know world politics. Um, that's not a world you want to live in. Uh, you know, this has nothing to do with the Chinese people or the Iranian people or the Russian people. This is about their governments, the kind of governments that we have always said we don't agree with. You know, how many times have you heard Republicans, including those who say they're against, you know, helping Ukraine, how many times did they call people in this country communist? How many times did, the, how many times did those people criticize anyone that they disagree with as a socialist or a communist? Then you look around the world and the actions that they're taking are actually aiding and abetting the socialist and communist governments that they would say they never want to live under. 
Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's just kind of, you know, if people want to kind of read more about this, I, I had a couple of stories this week, you know, at the Chronicle and Express News that dive into this. And certainly if you get my newsletter, you saw me write about it, you know, earlier in the week as well. But it's really, you know, it, it, watch this for a little while, you know, come down the stretch here. It's like I, I'm keeping a close eye on, you know, House members. You know, I, I did speak with, you know, Congressman Michael McCall, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who's, on, who's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs, uh, and he's trying to get this reauthorized you know corn and two they're both like trying to work you know the corners they see how not just this being an important piece of the bush legacy but just kind of how important it is a, a piece of american soft power around the globe so you know keep an eye on this you know we'll, we'll of course talk about it as we kind of get into this thing to see if it gets packaged into you know, future spending resolutions or you know if somehow like you know america really does stop you know this financial commitment in Houston, where you're reporting from today, there is a race for mayor, and it is already getting ugly, Jeremy, e- even before a potential runoff between the two people who are expected to be in the runoff, uh, Senator John Whitmire, the Democrat from Houston, uh, state senator, and Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. And in these races, what often happens, this happens at Quorum Report all the time, I know it happens at the Houston Chronicle and other places. People will drop off information in unmarked manila envelopes uh, in the dead of the night and act as if, you know, this as and, and act as if there are no fingerprints on any of that and we don't know where any of it came from. They'll pe- people will try to pitch reporters and journalists and say, "Hey, you know, I don't want to be attached to this and I don't want my name on this, but here's something you should probably know about so and so." That happens all the time during campaigns. And the way that each journalist navigates that is really there's kind of no specific manual for how to do it, right? But a lot of this stuff gets out. And it's interesting that in the social media era, it's getting out by people just tweeting the stuff out with no context whatsoever. That happens all the time. And um, there there was something that got national attention in the Houston mayoral race this past week. Last weekend, I think it was on, I think it was, it was not Friday night. It was, I think Saturday morning. Um, there's a website called current revolt, which is, has been described as a far right website. Although it's interesting that that website has been very critical of attorney general Paxton during his legal and impeachment issues. Uh, this website current revolt, uh, took some folks to task for being the people who were, uh, tweeting, uh, in exchange for $50 per tweet if they would support Ken Paxton. You saw where that was going on. Uh, this, this website, Current Revolt, called, the, called that out and said this is, some kind, this, is, this is fake grassroots Republican activism. It's not real. Well, that, that website, Current Revolt, they released audio that was said to be um, audio of Congresswoman Jackson Lee berating her staff, cussing them out, and... We did not edit the audio uh, that you heard earlier from the Texas House debate in which there were a lot of uh, heated exchanges uh, and uh, maybe really just really emotional moments. I know they were emotional moments. You heard all that unedited. Now, when they they aired this on The View with Whoopi Goldberg and the crew, (laughs) they did edit... They, they put the bleeps in for what Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee had said. Uh, and it's my understanding that this is a conversation from 12 years, or from, uh, let's see, from 2012, so more than a decade ago. Um, and the, the, the context was that 
Congresswoman Jackson Lee is trying to get to uh, an event, I think for the unveiling of, a, of an MLK statue, the MLK tree in Houston. And here, here's, here's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear Whoopi Goldberg talk about current revolt. And then you're going to hear the edited, the bleeped version of the audio from Congresswoman Jackson Lee, who was unhappy with her staff because they didn't have the information about this event that she was supposed to attend. They release alleged audio of Democratic Texas Congresswoman and mayoral candidate Sheila Jackson Lee really letting her staff have it. Google did it. Did it, did it, and nobody knows a damn thing in my office. Okay, nothing. I gave it to you. Okay, so when I called Jerome, he only sent up there like a fat, stupid idiot, talking about uh, what he doesn't know. Okay, both of y'all are up. I'm an f. This is the worst that I ever had put together. Two goddamn children, idiots, serve no goddamn purpose. Now, I will say. <clears throat> that the way a person treats their employees tells you a lot about them. Um, it is legendary in Houston and on Capitol Hill, by the way, I think that you would agree with this, Jeremy, that, that Sheila Jackson Lee's office is kind of known like boot camp for, <laughs> for staffers, um, that it, you know, that, that, you know, going in that it's tough. That's not to excuse anything that she may or may not have said. She did express some regret, uh, even though she didn't fully acknowledge that that was her on the on the audio, uh, but she talked about the need to respect everyone, uh, you know, both the people that you work with and the people who work for you, and all of that. But to go straight to the politics of this, I don't, I, I cannot connect this to any specific candidate. I don't know that this came from the campaign of any of the many people who are running for mayor. That's that's possible, right? No, nobody's naive here. Thinking that, oh, you know, this this conversation from 2012 is now coming out in 2023. And I guess you could easily ask the question, would it be out there if she wasn't running for mayor? Interesting to me that we're not even in the runoff and this is happening. It tells me that when we do get to a runoff between Sheila Jackson Lee, probably and probably and John Whitmire, um, that this will be as nasty as possible in that second round of voting, that there'll be other things that will come out. It'll be no holds barred. Either of these people, Jackson Lee or Whitmire, have the opportunity to just go right back to the office that they're already in, right? I mean, they're they're both they're both running for mayor, but she'll be a congresswoman if she wants to be, and he'll still be a state senator if he wants to be. If you know, if they lose the race, um, I don't think that this because there was such a big splash about it this week. But I don't know that it moves any votes at all in that race, um, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't know that. Um, these sort of big media moments, uh, these big uh, social media you know, things going viral moments, that they really move the needle when you have people doing so much work in these campaigns to try to shape the election, you know, going into into November. I mean, you have Whitmire spending, I think the Houston Chronicle reported that uh, he was spending as much as four or five million dollars. And, you know, Jackson Lee doesn't have as much money as 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 he does, but everyone in Houston knows her. Everyone in Houston knows who she is. She's a national figure, right? And I, I keep seeing about you know about how the polls say that she's got you know negatives that are extremely high, um, but at the same time, I think she's got a lot of people behind her who are really passionate supporters, and they always have been, in the, especially right in her congressional district. 
Yeah, mayor's races are particularly hard to poll for. I don't care how good right. of a pollster you are, trying to poll somebody on how they'll vote, not just in this election, but also in the follow-up runoff. It's like it's really kind of hard to gauge like how people are going to go because it's such a small pool of voters that you're trying to figure out who's engaged and who's not. And again, it's in an off year. It's not during a presidential cycle or a gubernatorial cycle. It's just on its own, sitting in you know the sea of you know, statewide constitutional ballot questions. Right. And then you have this, right? And it's like, so like anything can happen in a race this small with all that stuff. But, you know, I think it's, it's worth pointing out. It's like, you know, and I, one of the things that made me reluctant when I first got, you know, this audio sent to me was like, boy, it's like there are a lot of members of Congress who have said terrible things to staff. It's like, you know, she is clearly not the first one, nor the only one, nor the last one. <laughs> uh, like I've had like many of other members of Congress I've had uh, uh, who I've covered have gone through a lot of press secretaries, particularly. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's like it, it, it's kind of tough. You could almost do a, a version of that on a lot of members of Congress. And it's like so and so it goes back to your point. So why is this coming out now so long afterwards, you know, with, you know, with no fingerprints on it? It's like, okay, this is clearly all meant to have some sort of influence on this mayoral race, no matter who put it out. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, and I I agree with you on the thought that the one thing that, like, you know, Sheila Jackson Lee has that I think a lot of people underestimate is like, she's got a passionate base of support. You know, they are going to come through and vote for her uh, and come out and, like, make sure she gets their vote. Uh, And that's, you know, and, and that alone, in a small election is kind of a big deal. Where does your base of support start from? And so like anybody who's kind of looking at some, you know, a couple random small polls, you know, thinking that they know how the race is going. We don't, we don't, we won't know until like who actually does show up, who says they're going to vote and who's going to go vote in a mayor's race. Man, that can be a very different thing. I've have seen so many shockers in mayor's races all around this country. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, and I'm just not ready to, you know, base any decision based on polling on such a small sample size. Absolutely. Of course, uh, all of the uh, coverage of the race uh, is available at HoustonChronicle.com. Uh, you should check that out. You should also be a subscriber at QuorumReport.com, where we round up all the state's news for you. Uh, Evan Scherer is our producer. Evan, do you think that is enough show? Yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> all right, good. Check out Jeremy's newsletter as well, uh, which you can find uh, on X the artist formerly known as Twitter. It's his pinned tweet at the top. It's, it's a twin. It's a pinned twi- uh, post now, right? It's not a tweet anymore. It's a post. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. It's not a pinned I'm lost on X, all of it. right? You know, which I, I'm lost on where we are. Yeah. I'm lost on where we are with all of that stuff. Anyway, you should follow us both as well. Uh, he, he's at Jeremy S Wallace. That's where you can find the link to his uh, newsletter. And of course uh, I'm at Scott Braddock. We will see you next time. Mm-hmm.